Hello, and welcome to the Faculty Chronicles, TFC, a podcast sponsored by the Turo Center on Excellence in Teaching and Learning and the Office of the Provost. Your TFC podcast hosts are me, Professor Gina Bardwell, and Dr. Elizabeth Uni. Across academic disciplines, Turo faculty are producing great work, and the Faculty Chronicles wants you to hear all about it. TFC podcasts will highlight faculty chatting about their favorite project in research, teaching, learning, science, medicine, technology, and so much more. So let's get busy building community, connection, and continuous conversation tour-wide. Our next Faculty Chronicle guest is on deck waiting to chat. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Faculty Chronicles podcast. I'm Elizabeth Uni, Chair and Associate Professor of the Department of Social, Behavioral, and Administrative Sciences at the Toro College of Pharmacy in New York. Today, our guest is Fernando Bruno, Adjunct Associate Professor with the Department of Anatomy at Torocom Middletown Campus. Dr. Bruno received his medical degree and general practitioner certification from the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro and has clinical experiences in the US, Brazil, and Canada, including as a chief medical officer in the Brazilian Army. He also holds a Master of Public Health with a focus on epidemiology from Harvard University. He was also a postdoc research fellow leading independent research on neuropathology and tropical medicine at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine with a focus on cerebral malaria. Dr. Bruno joined Toro University in 2015, and his academic efforts were acknowledged by his students and peers, leading to honors such as Toro College of Osteopathic Medicine Teacher of the Year Award, the Toro College and University System Presidential Award for Excellence in Teaching, and the title of Open Educational Resources, OER Ambassador, for his involvement in OER projects that promoted equity in higher education. Additionally, he received an Open Educational Resource Fellowship, OER Fellowship from Toro University, where his work led to the creation of free scientific educational materials that promote equity and access to knowledge to students. And last year, he was awarded the prestigious Science and Technology Policy Fellowship of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS, to work on policy at the USA Executive Branch, where he currently serves his fellowship at the National Institute of Health. As an SDPF AAAS fellow, he works on health and science policy and research to identify the basics, to identify the best strategies for successfully integrating evidence-based interventions within clinical, public, and global health settings. Welcome, Fernando, to the podcast. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. It is a pleasure to be here with you and to share this moment also with all of your listeners. Thank you for having me. So, Bruno, you received two fellowships, OER and the SDPF from AAAS. Since the OER fellowship is from within the Toro, tell us a little bit about this fellowship. What is this fellowship about so that our listeners has an idea about it? Perfect. Uh, well, taking a step back, uh, first uh, explain what OER is, which is again, open educational resources, as you said in the opening. And these are educational materials, everything from a single lesson plan to an entire textbook, for example, 
that serve that save students and uh, the teachers money because they are free to use, customize, and share. And one of the things interesting uh, for OER is that they continue to be customized and developed because they are, they are open resource. So you can create a resource and others can continue to contribute to it and it will continue evolving. So OER are guided by the idea again of high quality education materials that should also be available to everyone. More specifically at Toro, I believe it was back in 2018, the Toro Library Information Literacy Director, which I believe her name was Sarah Tabby, uh, she created this OER initiative, which was sponsored initially by the National Library of Medicine. And uh, last I heard of it, I think since the program uh, fully started, they estimated that about 300,000 in textbook costs uh, have been saved by these OER projects. Now, uh, the fellowship in specific, as you were asking, the fellowship is intended to support faculty to, to develop then these OERs for use in their course. And, this can mean identifying or adopting existing OERs they already have or creating original OERs from scratch. And these projects are expected to be put to use in one or more of the classes in the year following the fellowship period. So the fellowship tends to take about six months. So after that period, you would then have a final product to be shared uh, with others. In my case, they did participate in this fellowship had to do with my realization that there's an overwhelming amount of information out there and that it can be challenging for students to scan through all of that and determine what is in fact high yield. So a lot of the academic materials can be expensive as we all know, and not all students may have this ability to acquire appropriate and especially up-to-date resources. Hence why we often see students with old textbooks or things that they can get uh, from eBay or something like that. So many times one will end up uh, depending on Google to find something. And don't get me wrong, Google is a very resourceful and great uh, information uh, material, I guess, if you at least know what you're looking for. But there is also a lot of possible biases in the results that can be targeted to you. There is also a lot of ads. So the materials you get may not necessarily be reliable or fit appropriately with your course. So in one of my medical anatomy courses called histology, that for those who are not familiar, we focus on the microanatomy and the cell biology. The students were frequently asking me where could they find question banks that would go along my material. And there aren't that many. And the ones that do exist, they don't really focus on the same structure of my course. So I ended up creating my own question bank that is now used across five different courses in the two uh, campuses of ToroCon New York, which is the Toro College of Osteopathic Medicine, which has a campus in Harlem and one in Middletown. So again, uh, for me specifically, was the opportunity to create something that I could use in my course, but because it's now open resource, others will be able to import into their course and even change them moving forward. Wow, that's 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 quite uh, something. Three hundred thousand books available through OER. Um, so. I wonder how many faculty at Toro actually know about this OER and if there's a key message that you want to send to the faculty as to why they should think about these open educational resources, what can be the message? Uh, well, to begin with, it's important that uh, they know that all full-time, part-time, as well as adjunct faculty, even if you're still hired but haven't started yet, you're still qualified to already be applying for this fellowship. So across all of Tour University campuses are eligible to apply. 
So if you have an idea for a project that could benefit your students, why not go ahead with it? So it is also one of those situations where we have an idea that we keep postponing, right? We all have like that thing that we want to do, but never find the time. So once you are in the fellowship, you were able to finally protect some time in your schedule to get that idea off your mind and into practice. And you do that with the additional logistical support from the librarians. So through the fellowship, faculty can receive training and education in OER from the two librarians who specialize uh, specifically in open education. Uh, one of them being Kurt Snyder, who is currently overseeing this program. And when you become a fellow, the faculty will have about six months, as I mentioned before, to develop the OER project with the support of the two librarians, uh, as well as the faculty peers who are also in their own uh, fellowship cohort. And you receive support through monthly group meetings. And in the end, fellows are then encouraged to publish or present their experiences with this OER. So for example, as part of the first cohort of OER fellows, and after the first round of fellowship, which was 2020-2021, the library and provost office organized a webinar when uh, Dr. Ola Lakin and I presented our OER fellowships project at Toro. So in terms of key messages, I could perhaps say, first, there's an aspect, again, of student access. Aside from the financial savings, classes taught with OER are consistent found to create educational outcomes equal to or even better than those uh, taught with traditional commercial materials, because again, you're tailoring something. And students have a consistent free access, access to their materials, which is not always the case with these traditional resources. Students don't often buy the required textbooks. They will mention, for example, the effect they are unaffordable, often relying on sharing a book with a peer or copying sections of a book from the library. And uh, this is just one of the many uh, aspects. Second, because you are the one developing it, is therefore customizable. So OER are made to be customizable so that the instructor can adapt the material to be most relevant to their specific student population. And third is, again, the relevance. So OER can be always up to date because one of the open licensing that allows for edits and adaptations which is to say it will open for others to continue to contribute and evolve it. Also, their digital nature makes uh, updating them an instantaneous process because you're now sharing them digitally and others can contribute and continue to, to pass them around. And if you consider especially the world post-pandemic, digital technology, especially in education, they're very necessary. Awesome. Awesome. So thank you for giving, um, uh, you know, talking to us about the OER fellowship. And now from this, you moved on to the next fellowship, which was through the AAS, the SDPF fellowship, uh, which is the one that you're currently on. So tell us a little more about it. Like, how did you come to know about it? How was the application process? Um, you know, what were some of the tips that you would give to faculty who are thinking about applying for this fellowship? So tell us a little bit about this SDPF fellowship. Yeah, well, we are, um, AAAS, as we often call it, which again, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I was quite familiar with it because it's a prestigious, I think even Benjamin Franklin, I think had something to do with it. Uh, but back in 2019, on top of everything else, I was also in the middle of my Master of Public Health at Harvard University, and they have a career and professional development office that organized several meetings with the goal of empowering the students and advance their career within public health. So among these, there were some opportunities to meet alumni and understand what they were doing 
and network with them. One of these happened in Washington, D.C., and I got to meet Dr. Sangeeta Rana, who was not only an alumni from Harvard, but also an alumni from this AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellowship. And she kept mentioning how this opportunity defined her career and that there was the before and after in her career based on the things she had learned from the fellowship. So I had the chance to talk to her after the event and she told me how she had been able to gain hands-on policy experience through challenging assignments. So that really caught my attention. Anyway, why did I in fact decide to pursue this? have to do with the fact that I had the opportunity throughout my career to be exposed to many facets of medicine, to be a physician, medical professor, public health professional. And in all those things, I realized I was often downstream from the policy, often wondering why certain things in the clinical practice, in the front lines per se, were the way they were if they were not necessarily as effective. So I would often wonder why upstream those decisions were being made. So I didn't have much opportunity to be involved with government and that elicited my interest also in this fellowship. So I thought that this fellowship would provide me with an opportunity to apply my scientific background to help bridge the gap between the technical knowledge and effective policies. So with my life rooted in academia, I was looking forward to this opportunity, even if temporarily uh, to have an active role in the front lines, experience the fast pace political arena and learning about the development and implementation of policies that can later be skills transferred to my students. Awesome. So in essence, what you're telling the listeners is that if you have an interest in developing policies, uh, especially in science and technology, this is a good fellowship for you. And you will be placed in the various federal branches, depending on your interest and the availability. Uh, so if there is an interest for a for developing policies, being in that upstream, make the decisions. This might be a fellowship that the listeners can think about. Yes. So now that you are in this fellowship, right? You are been you have been there. Uh, so what is your, your project during this fellowship? Well, um, as you mentioned, you get the chance to be placed in different areas of uh, the federal government and. My particular case, after the interviews, I chose to serve my fellowship at the National Institutes of Health, uh, which whenever mentioning their name is always good to say, uh, everything I'm saying represents my own opinion and does not represent the opinion of the federal government in any way, shape or form. So as a fellow, I've been working on health and science policy and research to identify the best strategies for successfully integrating evidence-based intervention within clinic, public and global health settings. So pretty much how can we encompass everything that is being brought up in the literature and bring this to the bedside and applicability to the patient. Got it. So it's like the implementation science that you're talking about. Correct. Uh, so again, this evidence-based intervention uh, has to do with pretty much what is the implementation science. So since most of the listeners are faculty, I can perhaps give a more tangible example by making us reflect on the general structure of publication in academia, right? So in academia, not only a total, but like academia at large in the whole world, we, we in order to progress, you have to create publications. But the way academia works is that you focus on a project you wanna do, you publish that, and then you give yourself a tap on the back and say, I published it, everybody celebrates, you move on to the next publication. But we don't often stop and wonder, okay, who is reading this? 
who is actually getting the information I just created and published and bringing that to application. So that's pretty much the focus of implementation science. So the field of implementation science seeks to systematically close this gap between what we know and what we do, which we often call the no-do gap, and by identifying and addressing the barriers, there's low or halt the uptake of proven health intervention and evidence-based practices. So uh, an example perhaps that I can give here with a practical example that many may be familiar with is the example of penicillin. So Alexander Fleming that I hope most of you will know back in 1928 was analyzing the laboratory, the effects that penicillin has uh, in uh, combating bacteria, but it didn't get to be used in patients until 15 years later when Howard Florley uh, evaluated penicillin in humans and then alongside a team of scientists develop a way to mass product it and make it available to the military and the soldiers who were, were uh, dying of infection during the World War II. So this lag or time delay is where implementation science or implementation research would try to act between the findings and that actually becoming available. So the take home point for this example is the road between the research finding and utilization and practice is actually long and a lot is lost in that pipeline. Plus the movement of evidence-based practices into routine uh, clinical or public health use is not as spontaneous and requires a focused efforts, and that is implementation science. For example, investigating what is available uh, uh, in the scientific knowledge and how that can be streamlined into practice, as well as assessing if certain findings have been demonstrated in a smaller scale and will sustain their effectiveness once they are brought up into uh, a larger, more practical environment. So going back to what I was saying in terms of publication, according to a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association, it takes about 17 years for only 14% of new scientific discoveries to enter day-to-day -day clinical practice. In addition, Americans receive on average only half of the recommended preventive acute and long-term quality healthcare. This concern exists across numerous diseases and conditions and, and knowledge on the flow of healthcare discovery into health policy is a critical skill that has to be expected of physicians, but we don't often focus on that. So there's a gap between the scientific discoveries and their implementation and availability to the population, the patients. That's great. Reducing the lag between what we discover and actually making our discoveries useful to the uh, population. Now, keeping in mind that many of our listeners are not from healthcare, how can implementation science be used by a non-healthcare faculty? Well, my focus has been the healthcare side, but uh, so I don't have necessarily have a practical example for non-healthcare faculty. Nonetheless, everything goes back to what we were saying about the no-do gap, right? About uh, systematically trying to close a gap between what we know and what we do. Um, so that aspect can then be brought up to every field. So whatever your field may be, even if it's outside medicine or even outside science, uh, if you're noticing that certain things don't work in a practical sense in the front lines, per se, uh, you can then try to identify what is the knowledge that is published, what is known, and then try to investigate within pipe, that pipeline what can be measured and identify the factors that impact across the multiple levels, including all the stakeholders and the organizations 
and what is in fact being lost throughout the discovery and the implementation. It's so true. And I think especially as a university, uh, many of us as faculty may see things where things are not working in the classroom, right? We, and we wonder why this is not working. Or, you know, we do the scholarship of teaching and learning, and then maybe it is not implemented rightly into the classroom. So implementation science is something that can very well be used in the educational arena, where every day we are trying to bring make sure that our students learn in the most efficient and effective manner. Uh, so let's say a Torah faculty or a listener who's listening to this wants to learn a little more about the implementation science. Uh, how can they learn more about this? Uh, well, since they are Torah faculty, I would say first, uh, feel free to reach out to me and I'll, and I'll connect you with uh, more resources and even some online courses that are available. Even hooking up with our first topic of OER, there are open educational resources also for implementation science that are available to all. But if I had to uh, recommend a book, uh, there's a particular book called uh, Dissemination Implementation Research in Health. Uh, and there's a subtitle also called Translating Science to Practice, which I think is now is in the second edition. Is a, is a, um, one of the authors that I now remember the name is uh, Ross Brownson. That was the book that I used when first getting acquainted with implementation science and it can always be a first step for those who are in a way uninitiated. But again, implementation science is what connects what we all are doing in terms of research, whatever they might be in medicine or outside medicine. And we expect the things that we're publishing are actually coming to fruition. So uh, implementation research is in fact what is focusing into making that possible. So I encourage all faculty to become acquainted with it. Awesome. Well, so to our listeners, if you are thinking about open educational resources, if you're thinking about the OER fellowship by the Torah University, or maybe being a part of the AAAS and doing a policy fellowship, or thinking of implementation science, bridging between your research and your everyday experience, whether it is in the clinic or in the classroom, wherever it is. Um, here you have Fernando Bruno, who is our associate professor with the Toronto College of Medicine at the Middleton campus. Please feel free to reach out to him. So Fernando, thank you so much for being our guest today. Uh, and thank you to our listeners uh, for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you very, very much, Elizabeth, and thank you for the listeners to sticking around and getting to know a little more about OER and implementation science. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Faculty Chronicles, TFC, Turo's podcast featuring the projects and work of faculty throughout the Turo College and University system. TFC is sponsored by the Office of the Provost and Kettle, the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. We hope you like what you heard and will keep listening. So join us next time on The Faculty Chronicles as we highlight and share faculty achievements that build community, connection, and continuous conversation.